Let's pray together before we get started. Thank you, Jesus, for this incredible opportunity to meet with believers in a place where we can meet freely, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word, God. Would you allow that to minister to us this morning? Use me as your vessel, Lord. Would you mute any words that are from me and from me alone? God, would you speak your words this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Race. What a touchy subject, especially around election time. Most of us do not regularly associate bigotry and racism with American tradition, yet it has been a recurring theme throughout our nation's short history. When America was founded, race was often equated with worth. Indians were a people to be moved out of the way of the heroic European pioneers. In the early years, African slaves were the less-than-human workforce for the privileged whites who owned them. In the 19th and 20th centuries, immigrants from Italy, Ireland, Poland, Russia, and so on were seen as the lesser people groups, even though every group besides the Indians were actually immigrants. As we all know, America is not the only nation, nor ever has been the only nation, that struggles or struggled with race. We are all undoubtedly familiar with the mass murder of literally millions of people during World War II in the 1940s. The word Holocaust brings to life an ocean of emotions that we care not rediscover. People don't know what to do with race. Haman surely didn't. He thought that by attributing something he saw as a negative quality to one member of the Jewish race, it must have been true of all of them. His pride, anger, and prejudice drove him to issue an edict that would effectively eliminate the problem as he saw it. We know from chapter 7 that Haman is hanged on the very same gallows he had made for his Jewish enemy Mordecai. His death was the sweet sound of justice to an abused people group. However, the edict that he made is still in effect. The Jews must still be killed according to the law that is now in place. But that can't happen, can it? Would God really allow this horror to take place? In the book of Esther, chapter 8, we find Esther pleading before the king yet again. But there's something distinctly different about her plea this time. Let's read Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 together. Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. 
the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So Esther is pleading before the king. Her heart is broken, but this time it is for her people. She has accepted her identity as a Jew. But not only that, deep in her spirit she feels the weight of their persecution. She has finally made their plight her own and gives voice to that as a testimony. Because of what Esther has spoken to the king, Mordecai has been given great power to wield the signet. Signet comes from the Latin signum, meaning sign, and dates back to ancient Egypt. This distinctive personal signature we use now was not developed in ancient times, and most official documents needed a seal. So in the king's giving his signet ring to Mordecai, he was handing him a blank check, so to speak, and allowing him to literally write whatever he found suitable. This is an incredible moment for Mordecai. What a contrast to where he was at at the beginning of this story. In chapter 2, Mordecai is introduced with the phrase, Now there was a Jew in Susa. Just another face in the crowd. Now he is handed the keys to the kingdom. This is huge. But the signet ring does not mean the edict Haman had made is not still in effect. For the Jews, there is a shimmer in the distance, but a cloud above their heads. And Esther continues to cry out to the king. Esther cries out from the depths of who she is. She is a desperate woman, weeping before the king. She is probably lamenting so passionately because she has finally realized the magnitude of the situation. This is a terrible thing that Haman has done, not only that, it is literally an irreversible thing. Esther is a mess, and she does everything she knows how to do to fix the situation. So the king extends his scepter to Esther. He, recognize, he recognizes her dilemma as she pours out her heart before him. He symbolically extends his listening ear to her problem. In verse 5, Esther pleads her case before the king. This is not new to us. In fact, we almost expect her to do so by now. But it's not the same as it has been before. She's doing more than asking. She's begging. She prefaces her cry four times. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me. Having grown up with a mother and an older sister, I've noticed that women prefer to use hints 
instead of saying something outright. So when Esther approaches the king, she wants things to go well. She really wants him to remove the edict that is already in place, but she does not want to come off as nagging and disrespectful. She knows how that worked out for Vashti. She wants to win his heart and get the point across at the same time. I imagine this little section going something like this for Esther. If it pleases the king, okay, he's not kidding. And if he regards me with favor, still not kidding. And if he thinks it the right thing to do, a little bit closer, and if he is pleased with me, ah, now he's catching on. Now that she has his attention, she can really let him know what's on her mind. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? It is apparent that Esther had a, has had a major shift in the way she sees her people. Maybe this is because she had a really hard time accepting who she was because of her upbringing. Growing up without both of her parents surely had an effect on the person she became. Nevertheless, she is now able to accept who she is and who her, her people are. Mordecai is seeing hope on the horizon for perhaps the first time in a very long time. For a long time he was under Haman's rule, probably spoken down to and abused just because of the way he looked and where he came from. This new position is a miraculous turn of events for Mordecai. The king has clearly heard what Esther said, and maybe to her surprise, he responds well. Let's start reading with verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribe were, were called at this time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather and to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command. 
and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. The first thing the king says to Esther and Mordecai is that he has given Esther Haman's house and that Haman has been killed on the gallows. Why would he say that first? Well, first of all, this is awkward for the king. Esther isn't having a cup of coffee with him and discussing the political implications of what Haman has done with his new edict. She's weeping before his throne. Quite literally, Haman's edict is an edict of death. For Esther and Mordecai, everyone they know and love and cherish is about to be slaughtered before their eyes. So, being a man and wanting to fix the problem, the king reminds them that this has also meant the death of Haman. But it is clear that that's not enough. So he tells Mordecai to write something to fix it. I imagine Mordecai is both overjoyed and immensely nervous about this new power that he holds. Yes, he has the power to restore Israel in some way, but that also means that if he fails, in a lot of ways, the blood of his own people is on his hands. So Mordecai calls in the best. Mordecai has gained some wisdom through his years. He wants the scribes Haman had to write his edict, writing one that would thwart whatever plans Haman had made before. These guys are the best, fluent in multiple languages, trained to a T, and Mordecai was going to take full advantage. And he did. Mordecai knew that the new edict needed to be done right, but it also needed to be done fast. The time for Haman's edict to be carried out was creeping up. With every glimmer of sunshine across the morning horizon came incredible joy and paralyzing fear of what could come. I imagine Mordecai was more than devoted to accomplishing this task, and when he was finished, the king's men went out on the fastest horses, proclaiming the news. It must have been quite the defining moment when Mordecai took that signet ring, placed it around his finger, feeling its weight, and pressed his hand onto the edict he had made and sealed it. There was an African-American speaker who came to Moody recently and talked about his experience planning a church in Memphis, Tennessee. He said that the house that they met in for the first few months of their church plant was the house of the founder of the Ku Klux Klan chapter in Memphis. This man had a prosperous company down in Memphis that did well and provides wealth to his successors to this day. One of those successors is his great-great-grandson who attends Brian's church and tithes regularly from the, tr from the trust fund his great-great-grandfather set up. Brian said that often this man will come up to him after the service is over. And while handing him a check with a huge smile on his face, he will say, if my great-great-grandpa knew what I was doing with his money. I imagine that must have been something like what Mordecai felt as he pressed that ring down. For all the ways his people had been oppressed and wronged, for all the ways this ring had sealed their fate before, today was a new day, a new seal, a new edict. In verses 11 and 12, we discover that this edict allowed the Jews to defend themselves. This is good news, but this is also violent news. 
The Jews would be saved, yeah, but not without the shedding of blood. Perhaps one of the most disturbing elements of the edict is that it involves women and children. War is horrific enough. Men killing other men. We're almost conditioned to accept that side of war. Our minds can handle that. But when a child is killed, we say enough is enough. Don't we? Or do we see them in the same way we do adults? In a CBS report, it says, a 15-year-old boy was killed in the shooting of the back of the Yards neighborhood on the south side on Tuesday afternoon. Jamie Ruvalcaba, 15, was killed in the shooting in the same block as his home in the 1900 block of West 47th Street, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. The shooting happened at 4.22 p.m. and left the boy with gunshot wounds to his abdomen, groin, left arm. Police News Affairs Officer V.J. Salas said. Skipping down a few lines, it reads, As of about 7.45 p.m., area buses were back to their normal route. Three hours. That's how long it takes. From the time we hear gunshots to when life resumes as normal. We read through little children and women quickly and then resume with the story. But we can't glide over the violence of verse 11. Both edicts mean some sort of death, and the readers had to deal with it. The Jewish people had to deal with the reality of that as well. They read what the edict said and would be ready when the time comes. Sharpening swords, perhaps buying or making weapons for the first time. This was a new experience for most of them, but they had to learn fast. The men carrying the letters aren't delivering these letters UPS ground. This is life and death we're talking about. I imagine the king was very clear with these men. You see that beautiful woman over there? I want you to ride like her life depends on. I'm sure they knew exactly what could happen, not only to the Jewish people, but to them if they were not swift and efficient. Read the last section with me, verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many people from the, Jew and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It seems in wartime that colors fade. At least for those of us who are privileged enough to stay here at home while courageous men and women fight for us, wartime is often seen through a black and white filter. There is no dancing, no songs. If there are, they exist to dull the pain, not to heighten happiness. 
It seems as though the world loses its color. But it is no longer wartime today, not for the Jewish people. Today there is life. Mordecai is no longer seen as merely a Jew from Susa. No, no. He is clothed in royalty. The blue, white, and purple popped in the midst of the people in royal celebration. The jewels that adorned his crown glimmered like welcome sunshine to a weary people. There is life and hope in Susa. Verse 16 tells us that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. All of their cries had been heard by God. They cried out in darkness and now they see light. They were certainly full of sorrow imagining their own death and the death of those they loved. And now filled with gladness. Their deep depression brought face to face with the joy of their salvation. And perhaps the most significant social change some of them had ever seen in their lifetime. Honor. They would no longer be downcast and disrespected, but seen as more than equals. Honored. Now let's be honest, when good things happen, we all share one way of celebrating in common. Eating. The Jews enjoyed a feast together. Praise the Lord. All of this celebration had people noticing. In fact, people started noticing how many Jews there really were. As they were noticing, they thought that they probably should join the ranks of these Jews so they wouldn't be slaughtered when this edict came to pass. What a contrast for the Jewish people, for Esther and Mordecai, for the king, for the city of Susa. Not long ago, they were to be annihilated. And now, there's a thanksgiving parade moving through the streets in a victory celebration. From death to life, from darkness to light. As the psalmist says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. There is one edict that has already been acted, enacted that cannot be removed. It is an edict of death. Yet there is another edict that is greater that can also no longer be removed. This is the edict of life. We know that when Adam sinned in the garden, he brought sin upon the human race. And as much as we would like to, we cannot remove the effects of sin from our lives here on earth. The edict has been enacted. But there is a greater edict that overcomes the former. It is the edict of life through God's Son, Jesus Christ. God has written a new edict that has been signed, sealed, and delivered. With it, God says to us, you are mine. We have already discussed the absence of the name of God in the book of Esther. But be assured this morning that the absence of his name is not proof for the absence of his hand. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that God will never leave us nor forsake us. For Esther and Mordecai, that looked like an edict that would save their earthly bodies. But for us, it is so much better. 
God sent His Son to die for us to save our souls. Sometimes we live as though we only know what happens to us up till verse 6. As if there was only one edict for us, an edict of death. But it doesn't end there. There is life in the second edict, life that cannot be removed or taken back. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. Just as it was for the Jewish people, we have had plenty of time to dwell on what has first taken place. Perhaps you find yourself stuck in the first part of this story. Crying out for hope, but not quite sure there is any for you. You're convinced that your edict has been signed. I agree. Your edict has been sealed, but it is not the edict of death. Let me remind you that Christ's death on the cross means irrevocable, unrepayable, eternal life for all those who believe on his name. And there is a parade taking place today. There is dancing in the street. There is a feast prepared for you and I. Will you celebrate? Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for sealing us, for saving us, God. It is not of our own doing, but it is yours. Jesus, we do not deserve what has been given to us, but by the grace of your Son, we freely accept it. Lord, help us today to move past verse 6, to understand what you have done for us, what you have done in our lives. Help us to live in that place, in a place of celebration, knowing what you have done through your Son. God, we thank you. We celebrate this morning. Be with us, we pray. Amen.